Today's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Racing is important to me. Racing is life. Anything that happens before or after, just waiting. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! No doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Gary Patterson, president of Shelby American, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Video and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run new computers in Google, TanTalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you missed any of our past shows, go to our website, NostalgicRadioAndCars.com, where you can hear all our past shows. Right, Bobby? That would be true. Good evening. Good evening. Well, you know, we got a pretty exciting show. We actually are doing part three with our good friend Peter Brock. Very interesting series yeah. here. And uh, so, you know, this is better than an ebook because this is live. Yeah. And this is coming straight from the horse's mouth. So the stories you are about to hear, ladies and gentlemen, are true. And none of the names <laughs> have been changed. No. To protect the guilty. So, at any rate, this is a, a great show, and I guess, uh, what do you got? You got something queued up here? A little song or something like that? You wanna, well, what? I do. Uh, well, considering that the zombies were in town here a while back, so uh, I think we should pay a little uh, tribute to the zombies. And we definitely know that FLACarshows.com is the place to go for it. You want to find car shows in the southeast of the state. If you want to find them on the west coast, the east coast, and north that's not a coast. <laughs> uh, if you want to find them anywhere in Florida and some other areas of the southeast, FLA Car Shows is the place to be. That's right. All right, so what do you got queued up for us? We got a little uh, oh, time, of the time of the season. It is the time of the season. It is the time of the season. Play this song. Yeah. Hey, you're tuning to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. Take you in the sun to promise 
Okay, we're back, and it's time to introduce our uh, very special guest. Back for part three. I'm delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, America's most foremost independent automobile designer, and my good friend, Peter Brock. Peter, how are you this evening? Pretty good, Bob. How are you doing back there? Oh, we're, uh, we're sweating it out now. Today was nice and humid and very warm. You know, so the warmth is no... I'm okay with that. You know, coming from out west... We're used to dry weather. This is very damp out here sometimes. And when it gets hot and damp, it's not comfortable. <laughs> well, it's just the opposite out here in Henderson. It's just beautiful, nice and dry and very clear. You know what amazed me is uh, I was out in Arizona, I don't know, a number of years ago, and it was in August. And it was so hot, and we weren't in the shade. But, I mean, you didn't even sweat because it evaporated so quick, <laughs> you know, because so, it's so dry. But, any rate... So, uh, where we left off the last time, we were talking about the, I think it was the uh, Corvette SS. And you had mentioned that that car was built off a 300SL chassis. So, please elaborate on that, because I wasn't sure about that, and I actually had to go and read, read, read that story. So, now I kind of know, but you go ahead and share it with us, guests, our, our listeners. Well, it's very interesting, because... Uh one of the visionaries, of course, at General Motors was Harley Earl, and uh, he wanted to move ahead with a sports car in America. And this, we're talking about 1951 at that period when he first built what was called the Le Mans concept car and took it over to Watkin Glen and, sh- and showed it to the early people that were racing out there on the East Coast. But uh, 
there was nobody in Detroit really until our Zora Arkus Dunkoff came uh, in late uh, 53 after the uh, first Corvette had been shown at the New York Auto Show and uh, uh, talked to his friend Maurice Ali, who was an English uh, engineer who was advising uh, General Motors on uh, better suspension and improvement on their automobiles. And he was hired in there uh, eventually to become the, the head of the uh, Corvette program. So um, although the Corvette was really dreamed up by Harley Earl, the guy that really moved it ahead was uh, Zora Duntoff. Now, the other guy that really had a major influence on this program was that uh, uh, Duntoff alone couldn't really get enough uh, change done he wanted to do really exciting things on making a sports car where Earl was still into sort of making a, a, a personal country club sports car, something that looked great, but, you know, was not really competitive with what was going on in Europe. But he had a couple of young guys that were working for him at that time. Um, and one of them was a young engineer, uh, a Latvian engineer who had come to work for General Motors uh, after working as a Mercedes mechanic and trained in Germany as a mechanic, uh, had come over and uh, was working as a design engineer uh, at General Motors Styling. His name was Tony Lapine. Uh, now, Tony worked at uh, General Motors uh, all the way through about 1957-58 and then disappeared and went to Germany and became the head of a special studio over there for Opel, and then about a year later, he was taken over and hired by Porsche and became head of Porsche design for some 30, 35 years. So you can see the progression there that he was an incredibly intelligent guy, had a lot of understanding, not just of styling, but of engineering, and uh, Harley Earl had a lot of respect for him, and when, uh, when Tony came up and said, you know, Mr. Earl, uh, Zora is correct. He says, you know, if we really want to make an impact in this market, we have to build a real sports car. Uh, not just something that looks like one, not fashion design, but something that's really functional. And he said the fastest way to do that probably, uh, instead of trying to, to do it and develop it on our own, is simply to take one of the best chassis out there right now. It's a 300 SL and uh, put a Chevrolet engine in it and put a beautiful body on it and let's go international racing. So that was the program and uh, the car was designed uh, uh, under Harley Earl and it became known as the Corvette SS. And uh, uh, Zora was heading up this program and of course uh, it was going to be a beautiful, beautiful concept car as well. And, and Earl was really uh, very, very particular about all the details on it, whereas Zora really wanted to get the thing as functional and fast as possible. So a, uh, a couple of them were built up. One of them had a uh, fiberglass body on it, became the mule for testing. And then the, the real show car, uh, was being built up at uh, Drill Motor Styling and had an all-magnesium body on it so that it would be super light. All right, hold that thought just for a second. Okay. I have heard that cars were built with magnesium bodies. Now, I'm familiar with magnesium wheels and various magnesium components and also an aerospace. 
explain to me uh, and, and my listeners how a magnesium body, in other words, it's hard for me to fathom a sheet of magnesium because I always thought magnesium was brittle, you know, unlike, you know, aluminum or, 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 or tin or something like that. So elaborate on that a little bit because that fascinates me. Well, the advantage of going to magnesium is it's lighter than aluminum. And right. The whole program on this thing was to make this thing as light and use the most advanced possible materials. So, uh, like any other materials, it comes in you know various tensile strengths depending on how what the alloy is and what the heat treat on it is. So, it can be formed you know just like aluminum or steel or whatever. Interesting. But it, but the main thing is is it's super light. But it's very, very complicated uh, to weld because it's uh, extremely, uh, you know, uh, flammable. You know, if you catch it on fire, the thing goes off like a flashbulb. So uh, it's not exactly uh, the safest material in, in the event of a crash. But anyway, if you want to build something as super light as possible, you know, magnesium at that time was the, the way to go. Today, of course, it's the composites, you know, with carbon fiber and similar materials like that. Interesting. All right, go ahead. Finish the story then. I didn't mean to interject, but I was so, curious. Anyway, the uh, the car was uh, uh, built up in uh, in the fiberglass form and was uh, tested fairly extensively and was taken down to uh, to Florida to run uh, in addition with two uh, standard uh, Corvette-based uh, cars called the SR2s. And if you look on, up there, really, it looked like a, you know, 58 Chevy with a little tail fin and everything on it, but the real, the real gem was this SS Corvette. The only problem was that Zora Duntoff could not get Chevrolet Engineering to buy into the idea of using disc brakes. Now, disc brakes had been used as early as 1955 by Jaguar, and they had absolutely annihilated everybody at uh, Le Mans because they could go far, far deeper into the corners. And uh, any car with, you know, drum brakes on them uh, could, could match it maybe for one or two laps, but not 24 hours. And that was the big advantage of the disc brakes, is that they were so superior that uh, you could go far deeper into the corners and do it for hours and hours and hours. And that was the main advantage of, of going at disc brakes. But Duntoff could not get... Uh, General, uh, General Motors Engineering interested in going to it, and obviously because that meant they would have to, you know, buy the patent rights and, you know, figure out a whole new braking system for American cars. And it, it just, it was just too big a, a change, both financially and, and psychologically, for the engineers at uh, General Motors at that time because nobody saw the advantage of it. Today, of course, all cars have disc brakes, but, you know, we're talking, you know, 1956, 1957. So the Corvette SS was built with uh, with drum brakes, probably the best drum brakes that had ever been built. And when they took them down there to test them at Sebring, they could run about three or four laps, and then the car's brakes would get so hot when they brought them into the pits, they'd take the wheels off, pull the drums off, and the return springs holding the shoes that just fall on the ground. Jeez. You know, it just the, the heat just destroyed them completely. So they knew right ahead of time that there was no way the car was really going to last that long. But still, they kept changing it and, and, and testing it. And they actually had Sterling Moss drive the car. 
and Fangio drive the car. And they, they both thought it was a fantastic car for one or two laps. But they wouldn't. They just both got out of the car and said, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you're so many years behind in technology that uh, the car will never be competitive. So when you do get it built up, you know, call us. We'd love to come back and do it. So obviously Fangio ran a 5.7 Mazda and won the race that year. But anyway, uh, they, they tested the car, and uh, it was obvious that they couldn't get the top drivers. John Fitch was uh, head of the program at that time, so he called um, uh, another Italian friend of his to come over and, and help him uh, you know, run the car. And they did run the car, and I think they, they made it last for about 20-some laps, and then, of course, uh, it... It was just totally unsuitable. And the part that I didn't mention is all the testing was done on the fiberglass car. When they finally brought the beautiful concept car, all finished in magnesium with this beautiful blue paint. I mean, it was just probably one of the greatest looking concept cars ever done at that time. They brought it in. It, it was, you know, all eyes were upon the car. But uh, they went out and tried to test it, of course, and the thing was overheating. And uh, the, the problem was that it had the Corvette grill in it with a usual, you know, number, I think, nine teeth in there. So, of course, they had figured out earlier running the fiberglass one that, you know, you had to take that out if you were going to get enough air in the front to cool it. But they, they had to call back to Harley Earl and say, can we take the teeth out? And he really adamant that he didn't want to take it out because that was the main styling feature huh. of the car. But they told him, if we don't take them out not going to run so finally finally they, they were able to get the thing out and they could get the radiator to cool but then they found out if they ran too many laps the heat from all the exhaust and everything into the magnesium was so hot that the car cockpit was way way too hot to drive the car huh. so all this planning to make the super car didn't work out because there was simply no development on it you know that's the problem it was a fabulous car it had great things if it had a uh great brakes on it and figured out how to insulate the body it would have been a terrific car but there was no time because they just showed up with two days to run this car and when they finally ran uh it only lasted a few laps and then they had to bring it in because the brakes didn't work the suspension was breaking up on it and uh, they parked the car and then shortly after that uh even though the car got tremendous very favorable publicity from its appearance um General Boda's management became very concerned because the car got too much publicity, and they uh, they canceled the whole Corvette program. He said General Motors is not going to be involved in racing, and uh, they got together with uh, Ford and Chrysler, and they formed what was called the AMA, the American Motor uh, Manufacturers Association, and uh, they all agreed that they were all going to get out of racing. And it was for other reasons as well, because stock car racing was... The price on racing was going up tremendously, and they were putting more and more money in it to win. And uh, they, all, all the people at the, at the top could see the bottom line. It was just getting too expensive. So they cut the Corvette program out, as well as every other performance thing you could think of. They even cut out the mobile gas economy run. So there would be no no mention of performance at all. So... That was the end of the, uh, the SS program, and uh, it was a shame because the car had tremendous potential and had it uh, had the good brakes put in it and, you know, other 
other things worked out, it would have been a it would have been probably one of the fastest cars in the world at the time. But uh, it just didn't have what was needed. Did that car survive, or did they destroy that car? Yeah, it was. Uh, management had told uh, told Zara to have the car destroyed, but uh, instead of that, he gave it to the uh, Indianapolis 500 Museum, and ah. uh, it's it's sitting there today, and you can still see it. Interesting. So Zara <laughs> saved the car by uh, by hiding it for a while, and then as soon as people forgot about it, then it was given to the museum and. And that's where it resides today. That's great. Let me ask you this. How common was it back in the day? Now, you were with General Motors for how long? Uh, about two years. Two years. Okay. So you probably heard a lot of stories and saw a lot of stuff. And so how common was it? Because I've, I've heard these stories. Was it for Ford, GM, or Chrysler back in the day, any one of the three, to basically – as in the case with the the SS, go to Europe, grab a European car, whether it's a full-size car, a sports car, or any kind of car, that they were trying to basically build a car for the U.S. market that would be somewhat competitive to a European car in a European market that's over here taking market share of the American car market. So how common was it for them basically to snatch a car from any one of the other manufacturers, whether it be here in the United States or Europe, to basically dissect it and, uh, um, you know, improve on it, so to speak. Really, it happened very, very seldom because there was so much corporate ego that they wouldn't even look at another car from Europe thinking that they were so superior. That was one problem why they really got snookered where the Japanese and the Germans got in and were selling tons of foreign cars before they finally saw the light that they had to get in and build cars that were competitive in terms of uh, engineering to what was coming out of Germany. So from your perspective as a designer, and let's just say other people within, let's say your close circles, you guys got it, but the corporate guys didn't get it. Is that kind of a fair assessment? It it was really interesting because I'd say a good percentage of the, of the design group had foreign cars. Uh, there were, I think there were really? five or six of us that had Carmen Gias, for example. And we would park them all together in a line out in front of management's top office so they could look down and see them all parked there. We were trying to give them a message, look, this is what we need to do. Look at the sales. You know, they're going to eat our lunch if we don't do something about it. But they wouldn't listen. And uh, uh, again, this is, you're talking about guys in management that have been there 20 or 30 years and have seen General Motors grow into the most powerful, efficient automobile manufacturing company in the world, so to speak, outside of Volkswagen and Fiat, maybe. And, you know, they knew they had the American market tied up. But that's what they believed, and they didn't see the creeping in of both the Japanese and, and German German cars coming in. All right, now let's just digress here just for a second, because this brings up an interesting topic. Now, I, I'm i kind of a sports car guy, because my first cars were sports cars, and I'm in and out of, you know, sports Porsches and Heelys and weird stuff like that, Jags, Volkswagens, MGs, whatever. And uh, so, but I'm also a diehard 
Ford guy, muscle car Shelby boss kind of guy too. So, but I'm like you and a lot of guys that are true car enthusiasts. You know, I I I look at the car for the experience. Okay. Now, where I'm going with this is like I remember when the Datsun came out. Okay, the the 510 because a friend of mine, his dad owned. Uh, the local Clearwater Datsun dealership back then. It was Datsun, right? And uh, when he was 16, his dad, and when we were 15 and a half, we could drive under five brake horse motorcycles. Well, I wouldn't have a Jap bike because I, I lived in Europe, so I was pro-European. So I bought a Harley Shortster, which was basically an Armachi, which was an Italian bike, okay? He bought, his dad bought him a uh, Trail 70. So here we are, two little 15-year-old kids, you know, scooting down the road, going to high school in our ninth grade on our little mini bikes, okay? Street legal mini bikes, basically. So when he turned 16, his dad, he was a little six months older than me, his dad bought him a 510. Yellow car, aluminum slotted wheels on it, two door. Was that car cool? I was so impressed, Pete, Peter. I mean, it was amazing. When Then the next year, his dad gave him a 240Z, okay? So that I was even more impressed, you know, because it had a stacked uh, dual tip pipe that they put on the Datsuns back in those days, the, the Z cars. And I thought, wow, you know, and I was always partial to German cars anyway, but, and some Italian stuff and some British stuff, but the Datsuns really appra- amazed me. And then a friend of mine got a Honda 750, autom- uh, 750. Then I started going, wow, this is really a cool bike. This stuff works. It runs good. It's smooth. So it kind of sold me on Where I'm going with this is all along, we're driving Pinos, Vegas, Gremlins. We've got uh, you know, Falcons, we are Mavericks at the time, Comets, Mustangs, and 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 Novas and Camaros and Firebirds and and Challengers and stuff. And you know, it's kind of like good old American cars, but you kind of want to go shake, rattle, and roll. So it's like in the early '70s, it was almost like uh, Detroit was sleeping. And these cars yeah. came in, and then when the Toyota Silica came out in '72, '73, the GT, I can't tell you how many kids in high school went and bought those. So we got Datsuns and Toyotas all over the place, and it was it, it, it broke my heart in a way. Well, I mean, I could see that what was happening at that time, and when I broke away from Shelby, I started, you know, designing and building and developing cars for the Japanese, and that turned into the whole uh, BRE racing program for, for Datsun at that time. And that's why those 510s were so cool, because we made them cool. We made them great race cars they had great engineering and you could buy one for thirty four hundred dollars you know buy a set of wheels on it and uh, a little little tuning on the engine you had something to go out and blow off a bmw or an alfa romeo and uh, that just created a whole new market a whole youth market for people that understood what was going on you know with superior engineering and they couldn't see that back there in detroit you know it's it's a shame that uh that they were so blinded by this because the whole corporate ego of, of every one of the big threes was, you know, we are America, we're better than everybody else without looking out and seeing what everybody else is doing. You know, I was working in a gas station part-time back then, so gas was 27, 28 cents, Sunoco 260 yeah, was like yeah. 32 cents. <coughs> 74 rolls along, we got the oil embargo, and now I'm only, you can only get $5 worth of gas. Um, and I got lines of people out there ready to beat my little teenage butt because I won't give them any more gas. All right, so here the guy rolls in with his big Cadillac, his big Lincoln, his big Imperial, you know, his big New Yorker, his big Mon- or, you know, Mercury or something like that, and big Caprice. 
Meanwhile, these guys whipping in there with their little uh, Datsuns and Toyotas, five bucks, they're running the whole week. And I thought, wow, America, America was just so asleep. And to me, that was the beginning of when Detroit sealed its fate. And, and sadly, I don't think it ever really recuperated. And now look at us. Every other car on the road is, I mean, it's maybe, I don't know what the statistics really are, but, you know, from my perspective going down the road, there's not a lot of American cars running around out there like there used to be. Well, even a lot of American cars are, you know, now built uh, sort of an Orient-type thing. So many parts are being interchanged internationally. But, uh, you know, the whole automobile market's changed completely, and uh, a lot of our stuff is designed and built, you know, Say in Mexico, for example, we build a lot of our trucks and everything down there, even though they have an American badge on them, they're building Mexico or in Canada, you know. So uh, uh, it's become an international market. It had to. If we hadn't, we would have been dead. But now uh, China builds more Buicks right now than America does. So it's just. It's incredible, you know. What do you think, what are your thoughts on the fact that the American car manufacturers, like my son has a 2017 Ford Focus. Great little car, 35, 36 miles a gallon around town, sometimes close to 40 on the highway. Great little car for a young kid, you know. And uh, America's not making any small little cars anymore, so everybody's relegated to buying imports. But we're concentrating on SUVs and trucks and, and things of that. And what's your thoughts on that? Is America, Detroit, missing the market again? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should be. <coughs> we, have, we can build the economy of scale there. But again, uh, you know, there's a, a lot going on between uh, the unions and the manufacturers and what they're allowed to build. Uh, and uh, they don't make enough profit. They don't think on making a little car because obviously there's a bigger pro- pro- profit on a bigger car. So it's very short-sighted and looking on what they're going to build instead of trying to look, you know, five years or six or years or ten years ahead on where they should be going. You know, they're trying to look, you know, what the next quarter is going to be. And, it, you know, it, again, there's a certain eco in Detroit that they are the best in the world and they don't really understand that their their lunch is getting eaten. Um, here's a question for you. If Pete Brock was being interviewed by Pete Brock, or, yes, what would be a question that you would ask Peter Brock? If you had a chance to interview yourself, and you're, let's just take yourself away outside here for a second, and you're looking at Pete Brock, and you have an opportunity to interview him, what would be a very interesting, fascinating question that you would ask Peter Brock? Well, one of the first things I would do is go back to a project that uh, I initiated with Harley Earl. And I said, you know, because I was 19 years old when I went in there, and I, and I looked at the automobile market from a, from a kid that was just getting out of high school. And I explained to Mr. Earl, I said, you know, as young kids that love cars, everybody wants to have really a cool car. But we can't afford to go out and buy, you know, a really super trick car. But suppose we use the economy of scale, the manufacturing ability of General Motors, and we designed a small car that would sell for $1,000. That's better than you can go out and buy the best used car out there. But if you make it with great design, 
you know, so you have something that you have a lot of pride in that you can be really proud of and go out. Why can't we do that? And he thought that was a fabulous idea, and we went in and built that whole project up. It was called the Cadet. It was a small car designed primarily for, you know, young people, students, that type of thing. Great looking, good styling, looked like a real like little Italian GT car. And uh, we had so much interest on that car within General Motors. We had everybody wanted to buy that car as a car to come to work and, you know, because it was handsome, it was good looking, whatever. And one person, the chairman of the board, Harlow Curtis, when he first saw it, he just said, General Motors doesn't build small cars. And that was the end of the program. Had we gone ahead and built that car, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today. And I could say if we could go back and do that car again, you know, whether it costs, you know, $10,000 today, you know, because of inflation or whatever, there is still a market for a small, good-looking, you know, car that a young person can buy. And Did- uh, it's just... It's it's just it's too easy a solution, you know. But uh, nobody wants to really face the uh, the reality of it. When you came up with that name, Cadet, because Opal years later came out with a Cadet. Did well, there was actually a Cadet earlier than that by was it? And uh, uh, management decided to call it that. Uh, I wanted to call it the Campus because I thought uh, that would be a really cool name for you know you could see that. You know, this is so small you could drive it around. You know, anywhere, park at any anywhere on the school. Uh, you know, it wouldn't get in anybody's way or anything, and it and it would be a you know really the main thing was it had great style to it. Uh, so it didn't matter how cheap the thing was; it was good looking, and that was the thing that had the appeal. And it was interesting because when we were designing this in the studio, for example, every studio within the within General Motors styling is only open to the people that work inside that studio. No one else is allowed in there to see what's going on, with a couple of exceptions. One of them is the male girls that deliver the mail in there, and the other is the workers that come in and do some of the uh, uh, woodwork on on the chassis and stuff, and the other are maintenance people. And all of these people watched this little car coming together and they kept saying, you know, I want to have that car. So just for fun, we put up a, a list on the wall and said, you know, I would buy this car if it was available for $1,000. And pretty soon we had about 75 names in there. Every one of those people could have been fired from wow. that studio and seeing what was going on. But it made such an impression on Mr. Earl that he was absolutely sure that we were going the right way with the car. And it wasn't until Harlow Curtis shot the whole thing down, because he had the power of management to do so. But had that car gone ahead, we had we had more than enough sales for that car within General Motors alone to start it. Jeez. What, what, what did it use for a motor and transmission? Well, it was planned at that time when we, we mocked it all up. Of course, it was a little pushmobile. But we were figuring a little uh, two- or three-cylinder air-cooled engine, you know, with an automatic transmission and stuff on it. Kind of like, you know, what Honda's doing now with a lot of their little cars and stuff. Hmm. Pete, i got to tell you, I, I, I 
cherish and I truly enjoy these conversations. And I'm great. I'm grateful that we're able to talk about this on the radio show here because this is fantastic. But you've written a number of books. Some of the stuff that we've talked about is in some of your books. So why don't you share with our listeners some of the books and how they can get those books? Well, all of the books that I've written, of course, are available here at uh, at BRE. You can go online to you know info at bre. Net, and uh, you'll see all the things that we offer. But I've got books on the history of the design of the uh, of the Chevrolet Corvette, of course, and uh, books on the uh, history and design of the uh, Daytona Cobra Coupe, which did for Shelby and for Ford Motor Company. And uh, got some books written on uh, going over to work in Italy to, to work for Di Tommaso and stuff like that. So I've had a great experience. I've had a chance to work you know, the uh, United States uh, and Italy uh, you know, influenced design work out of Japan. And I had a chance to work with many, many people. But I think that the area that I enjoyed working most with uh, was the fabricators in Italy. They were so enthusiastic that uh, uh, they were all artisans. You know, they just loved what they were doing. You could tell it wasn't a job for them. It was something that they came to work and that had a real heart passion for uh, for what they were building who built the daytonas there was six total you guys built the first one and then what three or five were built in italy five were built in italy at carrozzeria grand sport okay and, uh, the reason for that is you know when the, when this project started you know we're only love a very shelby american was a little tiny company uh we had like maybe eight guys down in the shop and maybe four or five people upstairs you know, running the business or whatever. So when it came to building the first Daytona, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of crew that was there to do it because they had to be working on all the other cars, the regular Cobra Roasters, the, the uh, competition Coopers, that type of thing. So myself, a uh, young uh, guy out of New Zealand named John Olson and Ken Miles and myself uh, pretty much... Uh, did a lot of the initial work on that car, and once a few more guys in the shop could see it, they offered to work on it at night, you know, on their own time to help us out to get it built. So we got that first car done. We built it in 90 days, and of course it was, you know, went down and, and broke the lap record immediately at, at Riverside, and then we took it to Daytona, and it broke the lap record there. And, uh, and led the race, you know, we were seven laps in lead ahead of the Ferraris when we had a, an unfortunate pit fire that uh, put the car out. And uh, so it didn't get to run again until Sebring, and then, of course, it won at Sebring. And by then, uh, Ford had started to take notice of what Shelby was, and they agreed to uh, pay uh, to run the car in, in, uh, in Europe for the World GT Championship. But even before that, we couldn't go to Ford Motor Company to uh, uh, get any uh, support for that car because they had already uh, invested a lot of money in buying the uh, Eric Broadley design from Lola with a Mark VI, and that car was redesigned. And it took them a, almost a year and a half to redesign that car and became the Ford GT40. And it was that long, long time of development and everything if they had just gone ahead and taken Broadley's design, which already had the, the 289 engine in it, and built those cars, they would have been way, way ahead. But again, 
that whole corporate system is like we have to redesign this. It's not good enough. We have to do it in the the manner that we build cars. And, and they don't think like racers. Uh, they they think like large manufacturers. And there's nothing wrong with that because when you're going to be build twenty five thousand cars, you know, a week or something like that, that's the way to think. But when you're going to build race cars, you you can do them by hand a lot faster and learn a lot quicker. Who were some of the other Italian um, carrozzeria builders that you had a chance to visit while you were over there? In fact, one of them, I remember we talked about the Lamborghini 350 GT, which was done by um, Carrozzeria Torin, right? Well, there are, there are the big carrozzerias, you know, over there, like Bertone, of course, and Farina, uh, and uh, uh, Ital Design and stuff. And they are all again, great builders and stuff, and they are far more professional than the small little shops in Modena that are usually build all the race car bodies. And those cars are, are almost built by eye. They don't have a surface plate in there. They don't have a, a bridge in there. They don't have anything like a major uh, car manufacturer does. So from the work that I did starting at General Motors, where everything is done on a huge surface plate and worked down to a thousandth of an inch, you know, you're working in a in a in a little shop with guys that are you know uh, maybe they have one one tape measure in the shop huh. and they're doing all the rest of it by eye. You know, uh, and that and I, I mean that they are doing it totally by eye. Uh, you can walk in there, and that's the standard way the Italian race cars are built. Uh, the chassis builder builds it, brings the chassis in. And then the designers are actually the guys that build the car in the shop and uh, figure out the design on it. Sometimes there's a, a designer that gives them a, a few sketches and shows them what they want to do with it. But uh, the guys, the fabricators, are the guys that come up with the design. So when you were over there, did you get a chance to kind of participate in anything? Oh, yeah. Uh, I built the, you know, the... the, the uh, the Daytona. So, yeah. Well, no, I, of course, we built the Daytonas over there, but uh, the most fun I had was working in uh, uh, in the little shop where we built the... Uh, oh, the De Tomaso? De, De, De Tomaso, yeah, the, uh, the P-70. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So how much of the how much of the actual... I mean, did you collaborate on the design work, or was that pretty much all your idea? Because that's a stunning car. That was a Pebble a few years ago. Well, that was very unusual for them because they had had somebody come in as the designer and sit there with them every day working with them. But it was so such a pleasure working with them because we spoke the same language of design, even though I didn't speak any Italian. I learned to speak Italian a little bit while I was there. But, uh, you know, we did everything by, uh, uh, you know, pencil drawings or laying string lines out or taking a long piece of uh, rod or something and laying it over the fenders and, and sighting the things down and showing where all the clearances were on it. So it was very much a hands-off building car, you know, completely, you know, I was working in my work clothes every day just with the guys that were building the car. Wow. Uh, something else that popped into my mind is after we were talking last time, and we were talking about the hang gliders for a while, did you ever get into boat design? No, never did. It would have been a lot of fun. I'm sure if I looked down in the Florida area, I probably <laughs> would have got into it because there's a lot of similarity uh, in hull design and so much of uh, 
uh, hull design is very similar to uh, automotive shaping. The thinking is the same, but the two are two totally separate things. And unless you're in one or the other, you don't really understand how the, the two interchange. Interesting. So what else is out there? I mean, you know, as, as a designer, you look at things differently than than the average guy do, does, you know, because sometimes, you know, you go, well, I, I, I could come up with something better or I could change that if we tweaked it here and there. Or it, it might be something that you use, something you t- totally utilitarian. Do you, does, does your mind still function like that, saying, hmm, I still like to design something in, I'd still like to throw something out there? Um <laughs> What would that be? Absolutely no. I'm I'm a designer that, that goes strictly on function. Okay. And if you're if you work in Detroit, you're pretty much a fashion designer. Uh, you're trying to uh, to uh, match a public taste or create a trend that uh, other people will will twig onto and think that that's really cool and they'll get noticed because everybody wants to be noticed if they have a their cars is what what gives their personality, you know, how they present themselves to the public. So, you know, uh, all through uh, all through the time that I was at General Motors, everything is designed with the idea of what's going to be the, uh, the thing that's going to be attractive to the public. So we went through in that period in the mid-70s where, you know, cars ended up with three different colors on them and they were laden with chrome all over them and we had big fins, you know, and in 1960 and you know I mean just all kinds of you know trends that went on today the big trend of course is these giant grills in the front of the car <laughs> stuff going on you know oh yeah uh, it's just absolutely no no taste value at all in terms of the, the function of the automobile but it's you know who can make the most complex grill with the most exo- exotic little patterns and everything in it because that's when people come into a showroom, they look at things like that that, that that they're sort of attracted to, and that's where Bill Mitchell, when I when I worked for Mitchell, was a, uh, you know, he had all been in the in the automotive business designing for some twenty seven years there, you know, and uh, he understood that, you know, and the young designers like myself were trying to get, you know, really clean looking stuff, and Bill kept putting little, you know scoops on things and, and little, you know, vents and all kinds of stuff that were not functional and it would just drive us crazy. <laughs> you know, this is important because when a person comes into the showroom, they walk around the car and the more little doodads and stuff that it has on the car, it seems to have more of a sales appeal. So that's why a lot of cars just have a, a, a lot of non-functional stuff all over them. But it's just a matter of fashion design. It doesn't matter whether you're doing clothing or shoes or automobiles or what it is. It's fashion design. And uh, you only get into the really the pure stuff when you start going racing because you've got to get rid of all that stuff and, and make the car as, uh, as elegantly simple as you can and still create a beautiful form. So, well, we've covered quite a bit. That's pretty fascinating. Um, now... We got about five minutes left, so I always want to ask you this. Now I, I I'm familiar with some of them, but what about your personal car collection? What does it consist of? My my personal what? Your personal car collection. I don't have a personal car collection. I have my Daytona Cobra Coupe, and that's it. Uh, that and my the car, my everyday driver. I have a uh, 
old 1965 uh, Mercedes that I've got 500,000 miles on it. Wow. What kind of Benz is it? It's the day I bought it, you know. It's an old diesel. No kidding. Yeah, it's just an old taxi cab, and it just is a great old car, and it just, you know, it gets, you know, 25, 30 miles per gallon and never blows up. It's perfect. What about the 2002? The little bimmer. My wife has my wife has a 2002. I mean, she's a real car guy and has a great little car. Oh, okay. Uh, so she has a 2002 uh, BMW, and then she's got a, a, a Bentley GT. You know, which is you know fabulous GT car. You know, but uh, uh, I just I just think my only collector car is my Daytona Cobra Coupe. Well, I figured you'd have at least a 510. No, I've, I would love to have another one. Uh, I just don't have the time to work on it. Uh, but I can't think of another car I'd like to build up again, like a 510, because they're such a neat car. And uh, But I've got a lot of you know friends that build them. You know, if you go up with uh, uh, any of the top guys that are racing those cars, uh, boy, they are, they are just, they're still a great car today and, and really handsome in a little automobile. Well, now, whatever happened to that the uh, that Baja car that you found, and uh, you had it on display actually at Laguna Seca a few years back. Whatever happened to that car? I've still got it down in the garage. Uh, I've been trying to sell it because I can't stand it. You know, it, it just it's sitting there the way we found it, sort of all dilapidated out in the desert. You know, when we ran the car, it was beautiful, and it ran it in Baja, and then I it was actually a, a duplicate of the. African safari cars, and then we, we turned it back to the factory. They built a lightweight forest, and uh, we did very well. Ran, you know, pretty quick and blah. And then we gave it back, and then they, they sold it privately. And I guess, you know, somebody raced it privately or rallied it for several years and then, then just finally discarded it out there. And so we bought it back with it, maybe thinking that we get it all fixed up and run it in some of the vintage Baja races, but. There just there just hasn't been enough time to do that kind of stuff, and and it you know it, it would probably cost thirty, forty, fifty thousand bucks to really get it back where it's supposed to be, and you know the money is just better spent you know, than doing new design work for our trailers. And, you know that's where our main focus is to try to get trailers built for enough people because we we build the best trailer in the world. Wow. Well, Pete, I want to I want to thank you a bunch for hanging out with us here and, and you know uh, doing these shows and part three. But you know what? We're gonna have to have more sessions like this. So I'm gonna give you a break for a while, <laughs> and then I'm gonna think of some more stuff and read up on you some more and probably see you at some of the events. But again, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here and sharing some of these incredible stories because you know you can talk about writing and you can talk about eBooks and all this other kind of. But when you actually hear a live interview and somebody talking from the heart and somebody that was actually there, that's priceless to me. I mean, that means that that speaks volumes. That's you know, I could just sit there for for hours and hours and hours and just listen to you. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners could do the same. Well, I hope you do. And uh, and all you listeners out there, if you like that, let Bob know about it. Okay, you take care now. Absolutely, Pete. You take care. Say hi to Gail, and uh, we'll see you at uh, some of the future events. Sounds good. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Good luck. Bye bye. Well, guys, uh, how are we doing here on time, Bobby? Yeah, we're getting down to the end here. All right. Well, you know what? I I, I, I cannot tell you. I mean, it, it is so, truly a treat to have Pete Brock, Peter Brock on our show. You know, I mean, he's a living legend. He was around back in the day. If you listen to some of the stories, if you read on this book, check out uh, BRE 
Enterprises. It's live and well in uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And you can find out more about Peter Brock there and all the great things that he's done and some of the stuff he was involved with over the years. I mean, just a fascinating guy, fascinating story. I'm truly, truly, truly just, I'm, I'm impressed. What can I say? So, on having said that, don't forget, there's a whole bunch of car shows coming up. Uh, go to flacarshows.com where you can find out where they are. Get in your cars and drive them, even if it's a beater. I got beaters. That's all I got. I don't have any money to buy anything really fancy and cool. But I have nice little cool little old cars, and, you know, you tweak on them, you play with them, go to the car shows, have fun. Because it's a car culture thing. You know, it's a car guy thing. So just get out there and, and have fun with them. And, uh, you know, I want to see some of the car shows. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. I found it out.